Well, I, I can't tell you how daunting it is to get up after the three previous speakers, who I think were all just absolutely wonderful, and, and I'm very proud that Maude is a fellow Canadian, and you can see what a great warrior she is, and I'm, I'm proud to follow her. Now, now that I'm in the last years of my life, I realize I've just been a one-note one Charlie for the last 40 years saying the same damn thing. So for those of you that have heard me before, here we go again. <laughs> in, I'm going to make my remarks within the context of Canada because I haven't lived in the United States for many, many years now. But you can infer the relevance of, of my comments uh, for your country here. In Canada, for years, we've been bludgeoned by the mantra over and over again that the economy is the most important thing in our society. We've been told that we have to sacrifice for the sake of the economy, that we have to give up social services in our communities for the sake of the economy. So the economy in my society is seen as the source of everything that matters. I actually had a minister of the environment who said to me, listen, Suzuki, if we don't have a strong growing economy, we can't afford to protect the environment. And it's, as a biologist, as a biologist, this has never made any sense to me to say that the economy is the bottom line when there's a much greater reality. And that is that we as biological creatures live within the confines of the biosphere, the zone of air, water, and land where life exists. And it's the biosphere that gives us everything. You take this room from the air you can't see to the glass, the metal, the plastic, the energy, everything has come from the earth. And when we're finished with it, we'll throw it back into the earth. So it's the biosphere that is really the, the, the source of everything that matters to us, including the economy. So I have, as a biologist, a very different bottom line from the one that we've been told over and over again we have to bow down before. And in order to explain what my bottom line is and try to convince you, I have to give you a bit of background. I was a junior at Amherst College when uh, I was, because I was a, a biology uh, uh, student, I had to take genetics. And in my junior year, I fell absolutely madly in love with the elegance and the precision of genetics. So I decided then that I was going to become a geneticist. And in the fall of 1957, when I was starting my senior year at Amherst, I, along with people around the world, was shocked and electrified by the announcement that the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik. I mean, most of us didn't even know there was a space program uh, going. And in the agonizing months that followed, some of you here may be as old as I am and can remember the the, the, the rockets blowing up on the launch pad and getting off the ground and blowing up. We saw the American program just in its infancy fail again and again as the Soviets re announced one first after another, the first animal in space, Laika, dog, the, the first human in space, uh, Yuri Gagarin, the first team of cosmonauts in space, the first woman in space. And we realized how advanced the Soviet Union was in engineering and, and science. And so, in, in true American fashion, the decision was made to catch up. And even though I was a Canadian living in the United States, I benefited. It was a wonderful time to be a student. If you had a warm body and said, I'm interested in science, they threw money at you like mad. <laughs> so when I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, we were taught and I believed that science is the most powerful way of knowing, that through science 
we push back the curtains of ignorance to reveal the deepest secrets of the cosmos. Through science, we acquire the knowledge to understand and, and manage the world around us, and life through science would get better and better. I believed it. That's what I taught my students when I became a professor. So I um, returned to Canada and in 1962, and, and uh, I was determined to be a, a hotshot scientist and make my name. Now, my field was genetics, and genetics was the ultimate uh, um, descendant of the Newtonian paradigm that looked out at the world and saw the universe as a giant mechanical construct. Uh, he called it a clockwork mechanism. Ever since Newton, we've looked at the world as if it's a big machine, and through the Newtonian approach, we would look and focus on parts of, of that great machine hoping eventually if we could understand enough of the parts, we could put them all back together and reconstruct an explanation of the whole. That, of course, is, is called reductionism, and genetics is the essence of a reductionist approach. I um, was trained to study genetics in fruit flies. We didn't give a damn about fruit flies. We used to call them bags of, flying bags of chromosomes because we were focused on genes and chromosomes. So that was my beginning then as a reductionist scientist, I got my first grown-up job as an associate professor, uh, assistant professor at the University of Alberta, and I was ready to make my mark, and I got completely sidelined by a woman. And that's um, ever, since, ever since puberty, that's happened to me over and over again, uh, usually disastrous, but in this case, one of my greatest regrets is that I never met her, but she had as great an impact on my life as any woman I've ever known. Her name was Rachel Carson. In, uh, in 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring. And as I read that, the message to me as a geneticist was, you guys are really clever. You can go in the lab and invent all kinds of things like DDT. But in the real world, everything is connected to everything else. So you may invent a chemical that will kill insects that are pests to humans, but because everything is connected, you're going to end up affecting fish and birds and human beings. And because of Rachel Carson and the message to me, I was pulled out of the laboratory and, like millions of people around the world, was swept up in what we now recognize was the modern environmental movement. In British Columbia, the first issue that I got involved in was uh, the American proposal to test nuclear weapons in Amchitka in the Aleutian Islands. And British Columbians felt that that wasn't right, that we should have been consulted. And, of course, Americans were no different then than you are now. They said, to hell with you, we'll blow them up. And you did. But the important point was that out of that, Greenpeace was born in Vancouver. A lot of people don't know that Greenpeace is a Canadian organization that started in Vancouver in protest against Amchitka. We, um, we were swept up in protests against offshore drilling for oil in Hecate Strait, uh, a mega dam on the Peace River at Site C, uh, clear-cut logging in BC, and, and, uh, and uh, pollution from pulp mills. And those battles continue to the present day. In my mind, the, the issue was simple. Human beings were taking too much stuff out of our surroundings and putting too much toxic material and garbage back into it. So the way that you manage this is you set up regulations and you, uh, you decide how much and what are humans allowed to take out of our surroundings and how much and what are we allowed to put back into it, and you enforce 
the regulations. So in addition to protesting and blockading, some of us were lobbying governments and saying, we need ministries of the environment. You know, before Rachel Carson, there were no environment ministries anywhere in the world. It wasn't even an issue until she raised the, the, uh, the warning flags. So we wanted ministries of the environment. We wanted legislation to protect the air, the water, the soil, and, and biodiversity. And we wanted the infrastructure to enforce that. By the early 1970s, for me, it became crystal clear that this wouldn't work. And the reason it won't work was told to us by Rachel Carson. We don't know enough about how the world works to be able to set the limits. How could we have set the limits on DDT when Paul Mueller first showed that it was an insecticide in the 1930s? How could we have managed that when it was only when eagles began to disappear that biologists discovered the phenomenon of biomagnification? No way that we could have decided beforehand the regulation of pesticides in advance. CFC is the same thing. No one could have predicted the ultimate consequence of CFCs up in the atmosphere where ultraviolet would break chlorine-free radicals and scavenge ozone layer. Most of us had never known there was an ozone layer up there when scientists began to say CFCs were destroying the ozone layer. And exactly the same thing is going to happen with genetically modified organisms. We don't know enough to be able to anticipate what the long-term consequences will be. For me as a scientist, this was a very severe crisis. We're not going to stop science. We can't stop technological innovation. But if our knowledge of how the world works is so limited, how can we possibly manage the impact of our new discoveries in a way that will minimize the surprise? And for me, the change in how I looked at the problem began with my encounter with Aboriginal people on the northern coast of British Columbia. In the late 1970s, I decided to do a film about the battle over logging on the Queen Charlotte Islands, the land that the Haida people call Haida Gwaii. There had been a battle raging for many years, and so I flew up there and interviewed loggers and politicians and, and CEOs of forest companies, environmentalists. And one of them was a Haida, a Haida activist who had led the battle against logging for many years. And I said to him, listen, you've got over 80% unemployment in your communities. Yet many of the loggers are Haida. So, and, and a lot of the other, the non-Haida loggers, they come into your community and they, they shop in your stores and use your barber shops and your bakery stores. They're adding value to your community economically. Why are you stopping, why are you against the logging when it's good for your community economically? And his answer was very simple. Sure, they could cut the trees down and we'll still be here. But once the trees are gone, we won't be Haida anymore. We'll just be like everybody else. And at the time he said it, I didn't understand what he meant. And it was only uh, weeks later when I was looking at the rushes back in Vancouver that I realized that he had opened a window on a radically different way of looking at the world. What he was saying is that the Haida don't end at their skin or their fingertips. That being Haida meant being connected to the land in a profoundly different way from our sense of looking at the land as a resource. That being Haida meant that the trees and the fish and the air and the, and the water and all of that part of Haida Gwaii is what makes the Haida who they are. The, the land embodies their history, their culture. The very reason why Haida are on this earth is told to them by their connection with the land. And ever since then, I've been a, a student 
privileged to travel to many indigenous communities around the world. And even in the most impoverished, dysfunctional communities, there is a palpable sense of a need to remain connected to the land. Aboriginal people around the world refer to the earth as our mother, and they say that it gives us birth by creating us from the four sacred elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And that's what I've learned when I talk in front of uh, my Aboriginal friends, they, uh, they act, their eyeballs roll up into their heads and they go, what the hell took you so long? I mean, this is what they know from the time they're born. They understand this. Well, in fact, it's been what people have always known. Throughout time, people have understood that we were deeply embedded in the natural world and dependent on it. Our songs, our stories, our, our dances told of that relationship, our celebrating where we were, where we belonged on this planet, and our need to act in the proper way to keep uh, the Creator's uh, gift to us uh, abundant and, and uh, productive. We've forgotten that in a, in a very uh, short period of time, and now people like me have to rediscover it and learn from my, my Aboriginal teachers. As I reflected on the lessons that I've gained I realized that we've framed the environmental problem the wrong way. There is no environment out there, and we're here, and we've got to regulate our interaction with it. We are the environment. There is no distinction. And what we are doing, what we are doing to our surroundings, we're doing directly to ourselves. Now, this is not rocket science. This is the, the most obvious thing when you think about it. Maud talked about the, the continuity of water molecules, our legacy since the beginning of time. The same thing with air. You know, you, we don't think about air, but from the moment every one of us left our mother's body to the last gasp on our deathbed, we need air 15 to 40 times a minute. We breathe air deep into the most moist, warm, intimate parts of our bodies, and we fuse to the air. When you think of the, the destiny of the air we breathe in, our lungs are filled with about 300 million alveoli, these little capsules. We need all of those alveoli to make the, uh, the surface area to come into contact with the air. If you flattened out all of the alveoli onto two dimensions, it would, they would cover a tennis court. So that much surface area is all wrinkled up into our lungs, and then along lining each alveolus is a three-layered membrane called a surfactant. The surfactant reduces surface tension, so when the air comes into contact with it, it fuses to the surfactant. Carbon dioxide rushes out. Oxygen and whatever else is in that air is sucked into our bodies. The oxygen is picked up by red blood cells, and with every beat of our heart, that oxygen is delivered to all parts of our bodies. The point is, you can't draw a line and say the air ends here and I begin there. There is no line. The air is in us, it's fused to us, and it's circulating throughout our bodies. We are the air in the most profound way. And when I tell children that we are the air and that air isn't a, a vacuum or empty space, it's a physical substance, so what comes out of my nose goes straight up yours, they immediately go... <gasps> you know, I guess we, they think we've got a little bubble of air that's Mark, Mary, or Johnny... Air is not, air is a substance that embeds us. The whole American notion that we're, you know, John Wayne riding in the, in the saddle, uh, rugged individualist is nonsense. We're not separate individuals. We're tied together by the matrix of air that embeds us with 
not just human beings, but, but the trees and the birds and the snakes and the worms that are all using that air. And there's that wonderful thought exercise the American astronomer Harlow Shapley did many years ago where he wanted to follow the fate of a single breath of air. Well, how do you do that? 99% of the air is oxygen and nitrogen. You breathe air in, and oxygen is what we want. It goes into your body, and most, well, much of it doesn't come back out. Uh, nitrogen goes into your body, and some of it reacts biochemically and stays in our body. So oxygen and nitrogen you can't follow, but 1% of the air is a, an element called argon. And argon, if you remember your chemistry lessons from high school, is an in inert gas, or what they call a noble gas. I guess it's noble because they're so snooty they won't react chemically with anything else. They don't want to touch those commoner elements. Anyway, argon is a noble gas. It goes into your body and it comes right back out. So argon's a good marker for the air that we take in. How many argon atoms are there in one breath of air? Shapley calculates there are about 3 times 10 to the 18th. That's 3 followed by 18 zeros. I say, that's a shitload of argon. That's a lot of argon. So, all right, let's follow one breath of air that comes out of my nose. It immediately begins to mix in this room by convection, and within a few minutes, every one of you are, re are breathing gazillions of argon atoms that came from that one original breath. But the door is open, and there's leakage, and the, the argon goes out across uh, San Rafael, across California, around the world. And according to Shapley, one year later, if we came back into this room, every breath you take has about 15 argon atoms from that one breath that we took a year ago. So on the basis of that calculation, Shapley says that every breath you take has millions of argon atoms that were once in the bodies of Joan of Arc and Jesus Christ. That every breath you take has millions of argon atoms that were in the bodies of dinosaurs 65 million years ago. And that every breath you take will suffuse the lives of all terrestrial organisms as far as we can see into the future. So air surely should be regarded as this sacred substance that gives life to us and that connects us so intimately from the past well into the future. Now, our great boast as a species is that we're smart. <laughs> we're intelligent. Well, we're clever. But what intelligent creature, knowing this, the sacred role that air plays in the lives of creatures around the world, would proceed to use air as a toxic dump and think somehow it's going to be diluted away and everything will be fine. I calculate at my age that I have taken over 350 million breaths. That's one to four liters of air sucked deep into my body and filtered whatever was in it. The idea that we can use air then and it's going to go away is absurd. We are the air and what we do to the air we do directly to ourselves. And what grieves me today you know, in, in Canada, not long ago, coal miners took canaries down in the mines in Cape Breton. And the reason for that, of course, is that canaries are hypersensitive to hydrogen sulfide or sour gas, which is poisonous. Canary keeled over. The miners didn't say, hey, Jack, come over, have a look at this bird. What do you think? You think they hauled their asses out of there as fast as they could go. That's why they took the canary down in the mines. Today, canaries are falling all over the planet. Plant and animal species that can no longer survive because of what we've done to the air. And we've, paid, we've, we've ignored them. And now what has happened? Our own children have become the canaries and we still ignore it. 
Today in Canada, one out of five children will develop asthma. When I was a boy growing up in the 1930s, we'd never even heard the word asthma. It was a disease that was so rare, the average person didn't know what it was. Today, you can't go into a class in Canada and not find all kinds of children with puffers. Our children are canaries and are telling us in no uncertain terms, we are the air, and whatever we do to the air, we do to ourselves. And the same applies... The same applies to water. We are water, over 60% water by weight. And the water we drink, as uh, Maud showed so eloquently, is, is not just San Rafael water, it's not Vancouver water. The water circulates around the planet through the hydrologic cycle so that what, whatever we do to the water, we're going to do to ourselves and it comes from all over the planet. We are the earth because every bit of the food or, that we eat was once alive, and most of it comes, 98% of it or so, comes from the soil, the earth. We are the earth in the most profound way. And we are fire because every bit of the energy in our bodies that we need to live, grow, and move was once sunlight that's been captured by plants, converted into chemical energy that we then uh, consume. We are indeed created from the earth by the four sacred elements. And as an intelligent, or at least a species that boasts of intelligence, it seems to me that that kind of knowledge ought to profoundly affect that the way we treat our mother. And right now, we're not treating our mother in a way that is at all respectful. As I wrote about the four sacred elements in my book, The Sacred Balance, I was absolutely astounded to realize that the real miracle of life on this planet is, as Kenny said in his opening remarks, it is the web of living things, what biologists call biodiversity, that is responsible for creating, cleansing, and replenishing the four sacred elements. It was plants that created the oxygen-rich atmosphere that we have. Before there were plants, the air was absolutely toxic to animals like us. It's, uh, it's microorganisms and, and plant roots in the soil that filter water for us. In Vancouver, we don't filter our water at all. We get it from three watersheds surrounded by old-growth rainforest, and I believe we have the best water in the world because it's life that's filtering the water for us. Life provides every bit of the food that we need to exist because it was all, all of our food was once alive, and life created soil that we grow our food in. Before there was life on Earth, there was no soil anywhere on the planet. And finally, life provides us with all of the fuel, other than nuclear, all of the fuel that we need, whether it's wood, peat, coal, oil, gas, all of that represents sunlight captured by plants that we liberate on burning. And it was life that created fire on the earth itself. Before there was any life on earth, there was no fire anywhere on the planet because in order to have fire, you need oxygen. So the miracle of life on this planet is not that we are created out of the earth by the four sacred elements, but that it is life itself that continues to provide those elements for us. Now we say we're intelligent. What intelligent creature, knowing that biodiversity is the very source of our sacred elements, would proceed to attack the world of biodiversity as we are, tearing at that web in a, in a, in a rather frightening way? As I, 
I've come to realize then that it is our biological nature that creates the real bottom line. We are animals. And as animals, if we don't have clean air, clean water, clean soil, and clean energy and biodiversity, we just don't live or we sicken. So those surely should be regarded as the real bottom line. Now, I find, especially in the southern part of the United States, this is a very hard thing to sell people. I was in Dallas a while ago, and there were a number of kids in the audience, and I said to the kids, now, if you remember one thing from my talk, remember that we are animals. Man, did their parents get pissed off at me. (laughs) Don't call my Johnny an animal. We're human beings. We don't like to be called animals. And yet it is our animal nature that dictates the real bottom line. And uh, once you can secure or ensure those basic needs, then it turns out that there is another level of of, uh, need that we have that is dictated by the fact that we are social creatures. As social animals, the most fundamental need, need we have to be fully human turns out to be love. One minute. Okay. I can't cover, can't cover love and spirit in a minute. I'm sorry. I'll, uh, um, anyway, so what, uh, let, let me end at that then. That, that we are, we forget our bio... <laughs> no, we've been on time and I'm not going to be the one to wreck it. Uh, I, I want to thank you very much for, for listening to me. And I think that what we need to do is to, to get right down to what we are as biological creatures and realize that dictates our most elementary needs and that we are social and spiritual creatures that, are, that's, that we have to satisfy every bit as much. And then we begin to ask the, real, the, the important question, how do we create an economy? How do we create a society that is built on the protection of our real fundamental needs? Thank you very much.